It's important as you turn to that text to to understand the flow of Matthew 18. Throughout the chapter, Jesus has been focusing our attention on the attitude and actions of the people in the church. And so in verses 1 through 6, he he gives a different definition of greatness. He says there's a certain uh, definition of greatness outside of the church in the world. And inside the church, there's a different different definition of greatness. In uh, verses 7 and 8, he he warns us to not uh, let our actions be a temptation to draw other people away. In 10 through 14, he tells us that each individual in the church is valuable. And that the people in the church, and specifically the leaders, are going to have to take risks to go out and to get those people who might wander away. And then last week we looked at verses 15 through 20. He says, you know, your brother or your sister, the people that are in the aisle with you, we're not talking about people outside, we're talking about people inside, they will sin against you. So we're not going to be surprised when it happens. But then he says, because I know that's going to happen, I'm going to give you a a system, a process to to go back and try to mend those relationships back together because I don't want this fracturing. And so he gives us that process. And we talked about that last week. And then we turn to verse 21. And Jesus is now talking about forgiveness. So that's the flow. And I want you to just see verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, then he gives us the process. And then verse 21, then Peter came up to him and said, how often will my how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. So there's a connection. There's a flow. And Jesus, Peter asked that question. Then Jesus responds, verse 22, or or Peter asked as many as seven times. And then Jesus responds, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times. But 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Then the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master, that servant, released him and forgave him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in his and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's take a moment here to reflect on God's word together.
I was reading something else this week. It wasn't really in relationship to this passage. And I came across this quote. Christianity is not difficult to live. It's impossible. Christianity is not difficult to live. It's impossible. Fortunately, real Christianity is Christ living in you. It's not what you try to do, but what he does in you. And so when I come to Matthew chapter 18 and I read through this text, I think this is one of those impossible ones. You know, this is (laughs) 70 times seven. I prefer choking over forgiveness. And so sorry if you're a visitor here, that's probably not a good. But but it is it is it is difficult to do. And Peter understands the difficulty and he comes to Jesus and he's sensing, yes, okay, a brother might sin against me and you've given me this process to go through. But how many times do I have to go through the process? How many times do I have to go back to the one on one and that doesn't work and then the one on two or three and then bring it to the church? Okay, but I mean, how many times is there a limit? And sort of the tradition of the time was that, yes, there is a limit is three times. The Jewish rabbis would have taught you that for three times you should forgive, but the fourth time you, you don't have to forgive. And so when Peter comes to Jesus and he says, hey, should I do it seven times? You can have a you can get the sense that Peter's coming in, you know, saying, <laughs> you know, I'm more spiritual than most people. And I know it's three times, but. Jesus, I'm asking you, would it would it be okay if I extended that out, if I if I went to seven times? And as so often happens in conversations with Jesus, Jesus completely stuns Peter with his response. You know, you're you're coming to Jesus, you're asking this question and you are anticipating his already reaction. Peter, way to go. Awesome, man. Seven times. You're a hero. And Jesus says, You know, I don't say seven times. And Peter must have been, yeah, I know you're going to say three, but I mean, I'm at the top of the class. And I wonder if that's what he he was thinking when when Jesus says, Peter, I don't say seven times, comma. And Peter's sort of getting his chest out. He's standing a little higher. No, no, I say 70 times seven. In other words, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, in terms, when it comes to forgiveness, don't count. Just don't keep a count. I mean, it's not really 490. It's just a, it's just a number that's so large that you couldn't you couldn't possibly be being you couldn't possibly keep count with how many times that you're going to offer forgiveness. So now when I come to that particular concept or that verse, my primary reaction to Jesus' statement, so I'm applying it to myself thinking, how is this possible? I'm asking myself, what could possibly fuel the ability to forgive without counting? I mean, I see that he says, Paul, when it comes to forgiving your your spouse or your son or your daughter or your 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 work, the person you work with, your neighbor or your parent or whatever it is, I, I can read it. I can I can see you're saying just don't keep counting. Just keep forgiving. I'm asking myself, what's going to fuel that? 
How am I going to make that happen? That seems impossible. And Jesus gives the answer in the parable that begins in verse 23. A king returns to his own country, and while he is away, the servants took care of the king's affairs. But now the king is coming back, and he's ready to settle accounts. He's ready to say, hey, I've given my servants all these resources, and I'm going to get the accounting ledger out, and I'm going to see what they've done with my resources. It's a, it's a bookkeeping term. It's Let's sit down with the ledger, and let's see, Paul, what you've done with the resources that I've given you. And so the king comes down, and he's sitting with servants and Then this one particular servant comes up, and it's apparent from the story that this servant hasn't lived like a servant while the king is gone. This servant has lived like the king while the king is gone. Because he's taken this massive amount of resources, and now when it comes to the accounting, he can't give an account to it. I mean, the the, the amount here, the 10,000 talents, is some number that's bigger than you could possibly repay. Let's say it's $50 million in today's terms. So the king comes back and it says, okay, you know, you you are given 50 million. And and what did you do? And, and, And basically the servant has squandered it. He has no way to repay it. And so in verse 26, the servant falls on his knees And although both parties know it's not possible, the servant knows it's not possible and the king knows it's not possible. The servant says, is there any way that you could uh, give me some more time? I'll, I'll repay it. And then really in an absolutely stunning verse, part of the story, the king forgives the servant. And sets him free. You find out that the king, when the king comes, he actually comes and he serves the servant. Instead of getting what the what the servant deserves, he he gives grace. And so we see in verse twenty seven these three characteristics of the king that are important for us to notice. The king took pity on him. Really, a better translation is. Uh, he had compassion. This word pity comes from uh, the word spleen. And it's meant that he has this gut reaction. He, ha- he has this gut feeling t- towards his servant. I mean, I wonder, just think, what would your gut feeling be if you came back and you had given $50 million to somebody, and when you came back to settle accounts, they had not $1? Would your gut feeling be compassion? Or would it be choking? And so the the king looks at him, and he doesn't just have pity, I'm sorry. He's moved towards, his heart is moving towards this man, even though he's squandered all these resources. This great king has come and said, I'm moving with compassion towards you, even though you've wasted everything that I've given you. The heart of the king goes out to this servant. And then notice he releases the servant. He sets the servant free. He refuses to hold the debt against the servant. You see, he doesn't say, okay, you know, really, you can't possibly repay it, but just go out there and work real hard and give whatever you can back. That that would still be an enormously generous offer. Offer. I mean, I know I'm not going to get my 50 million back, but I mean, 200 bucks is better than nothing. So do do what you can. He doesn't even say that. He says, you're free. 
Yeah, I'm just setting you free. The third thing he does is he forgives the debt. Now, it's important to understand this when he says this. Does this mean the king forgets about the debt? He comes and he says, I'm moved with compassion. I'm setting you free. I'm forgiving you. But am I forgetting about the debt? And I would say no. Because the $50 million loss doesn't somehow just magically go away. Somebody has to absorb the loss. And who's that going to be? It's going to be the king. The king's not going to wield it as a weapon against the servant. He's going to say, I'm not going to forget about the thing. I'm just going to forgive you. And I'm going to be the person who absorbs the loss. You, You go free. I'm going to suffer the loss so that you don't have to. And, of course, at this point, almost any Christian can make the parallels here. But I'll draw them for you. God is the king and we are his servants. One day we will each stand face to face and he will want to settle an account he's given you some amount of resources you may think it's ten dollars or you may think it's ten million dollars in terms of money or talent but you will stand and he says i gave all that to you i'd like to settle up what'd you do with it and of course if you know your heart very well you know that you've decided to live your life like a king instead of like a servant and you've squandered what you have you can't give a good account for the talent the time the money that you've given you you've terribly mismanaged the king's resources and and now you have a debt to god that you can't possibly repay it's too large and so when we come to pray and say lord i'm begging you We see the heart of the king. And this is the gospel. This is the best news anybody could ever hear. It makes all the difference. The the real come, the real king comes. And what we learn about when the real king comes, and his name is Jesus, what we learn is that he too came to serve and not to be served. Jesus came, the, the creator. We read about in Colossians, the visible image of the invisible God. He comes, and when the real king comes, who owns everything, who could say, let's settle accounts, he really comes to serve. And so he's just like this king in the story. He's full of compassion. He knows that we've wasted our resources. We, he knows that we've been living like a king, yet his initial emotional energy is compassionate towards me. Not judgment, not distance, not anger, but he's moved from his gut to say, I, I'm, I still love this servant. I love Paul. I want to move towards him. And I don't want to give Paul what he deserves. I want to give grace. I'm looking for ways to get grace, give grace. I'm moving in that direction. And so we understand that he is full of compassion and that he releases us. Like a prisoner, we've been set free. Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the the spirit of life has set me free. Jesus didn't come and say, Paul, you've blown so much. 
But now that, you know, I've sort of got a hold of your life, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to labor the rest of your life and try to just give a little portion back. That's not what he says. That's not really grace. That would still be a massively good deal. I would still volunteer for that. But he doesn't even say that. He says, Paul, you're free. You've been completely set free from all of your waste, from all of you, all of your living like a king, both from what you've done in the past, what you might be doing now and what you're doing in the future. All of that debt I've collected and I've paid for it. And it's absolutely positively free. And you're released. That's the gospel. And he looks at me and he forgives me. Now, when God looks at me or looks at you and forgives our sin, does he forget about it? Does he kind of like the the grandfather figure, ah, it's okay. Let's just forget about it. I mean, is is that sort of the picture you have? Answer, no. He doesn't forget about it. He has to absorb the loss. Somebody has to pay for this, this, uh, uh, this damage that's been done. And because of his compassion, he doesn't want me to pay. He knows that I can't possibly pay. So he comes in and he's going to pay for it himself. And he's going to pay for it on the cross. And it's why on the cross, Jesus says in one of his last breaths, it is finished. It's also an accounting term in Greek, meaning it's completely paid for. In other words, I've stamped the piece of paper with all of your sins and all of its payment, Paul. And I've said, it's finished. I paid for it in full. You're completely forgiven. You're free. And now I can stand before God because Christ has taken my place and he has settled my account. Amen. So understanding that, really diving into that again and again, remembering the cross, remembering Jesus is the fuel that helps you, that helps me to do what Jesus is asking Peter and the rest of us to do. How is it that I can keep forgiving without counting? Answer, the cross. That's the fuel. That's the fuel. I'm hoping that when I come back each Sunday and even every day and I come back and I make a confession, I say, Lord, oh, I've just done that again. Aren't you hoping he's going to forgive you one more time? Aren't you hoping he's not counting? Uh, you got the four. I've gotten to 490 on some areas. I bet you have, too. And I know he's going to forgive me and he's going to say, Paul, you've been set free from that. So that when I go out and I'm encountering that sin in someone else or maybe even in myself and I can't forgive myself. The fuel that's going to help me move through that is this. And so if you're ever having difficulty with forgiveness, then you need to move back towards the cross and get some more fuel to help you begin to move through that sort of partic- that particular instance that's hard for you to forgive. So I can forgive without counting because of Jesus. Now you transition into the second half of the parable, which is uh, disturbing, but in comical in some ways. 
the servant who's been get forgiven this huge debt he couldn't possibly repay, goes out and finds a guy who owes him a hundred bucks. And just notice his first reaction is choking. I mean, I'm going to start the discussion with my hands around your throat. And I'm wondering how many of you might prefer that same idea. Hey, I've got a problem here. Let me put my hands around your throat and discuss it. You notice when you just see this reaction that the servant never really stopped acting like a king. I mean, if he really would have understood what had just happened to him, then he couldn't have possibly gone out and did what he did. But you see, you could tell his heart really doesn't change because he still want to act. He still wants to act like a king. And so my question is, when we look at this man, how can we be people who really extend forgiveness instead of extend our hands to choking people? Let's get, take an example. You and I get into a heated argument. I'm at fault. Let's just make the blame on me. That makes the discussion a little easier. I, I say something, I do something that's damaging. And let's just say it creates a, a, an emotional dent. I create some kind of damage. Let's say that damage is sort of emotionally in a dollar figure. It's a thousand it's dollar emotional dent. I mean, I've had a long week, and this sermon was hard to prepare, and I didn't get to the donut table and get my donut, so I'm angry, and somehow we get into a conflict about it, and, I, and this, this wells up, and somehow I'm, I create this problem. It's really my fault, and, and you've absorbed this sort of blow from me, and it's cost you $1,000 of emotional turmoil. And after I calm down, I come to you and say, man, I'm sorry. I, don't, I really don't have any excuses. I'm pleading i'm asking for your forgiveness what do you do so what happens when that happens somebody has created a dent then they come back and they say can you forgive me what do you, what do you start doing we give you some ideas just really from the text first you extend forgiveness you say paul i i forgive you now at the end of that conversation, let's say it happens in the parking lot, and I'm still going to go away feeling bad, but you're saying, Paul, I forgive you. Is that $1,000 debt gone away like that? I mean, do you walk away going, yeah, I don't, I'm fine? Answer, no. See, when, when you said you're, you're going to forgive me, you're saying you're going to absorb the cost of the dent. You're going to be the person who carries that until it gets worked out in some way. You're not going to hold it against me. You're not going to wield it against me like some kind of weapon. You're holding this $1,000 dent and you're saying, I'm going to pay it down. And so one of the ways you begin to pay it down is you just really come to the Lord and you say, God, you... You say, come to me, who all who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burdened, and you'll give me rest. I don't want to carry this dent that Paul Phillips gave me. I would prefer choking him right now. You have to really come to the Lord that way. 
You have to say, this is what I'm holding on to, and I'm trying to let go of it. I'm trying to give it away. Would you please change me? Would you please take this? Would you say, Paul, I've got, our, I've got a hold of this. You, can you give it away? That's how you begin to pay that down. You begin to give it to God in prayer. And then you reflect back on the gospel and you and you remember saying, Lord, I know I've given you millions of thousand dollar dents. And yet you keep coming back to me with compassion. So as you move towards me, the next time I see Paul, I'm going to move towards him. That's going to be the fuel for my forgiveness. Now, some dents take much longer to pay down than others. And you know this. C.S. Lewis puts it so well, and he says this, There's no use in talking as if forgiveness were easy. We all know the old joke, you've given up smoking once, I've given it up a thousand times. In the same way I could say of a certain man, have I forgiven him for what he did that day? Well, I've forgiven him more times than I can count. You hear what he's saying? You might say it once. But you're going to have to keep doing it again and again and again and maybe a thousand times. Sometimes you might say it and it's a one time, it's a one dollar dent. But if it's a thousand dollar dent, you're going to have to keep forgiving. You're going to have to keep extending that forgiveness. So we offer forgiveness. Number two, we move as much as we can with compassion towards the other person. And let me say because some of us have invariably been in this situation. When you, when you are in an abusive situation in some way, then it doesn't mean you move back towards that person that would endanger you. But I still think emotionally you do what Thomas Watson says in order to begin to extend forgiveness and to actually move that uh, bitterness and anger out of your own soul. It's on the front of your bulletin. You strive against all thoughts of revenge. What a tough one. Why? Because the Lord says revenge. That's mine. Yeah, but I would like to do it right now, the Lord. I mean, I have the maybe nobody's like me. But I would like the revenge to come right now. And I would also like to come in this particular way. And he says, no, that's mine. So I'm going to strive against all thoughts of revenge. I'm going to wish them well. I'm going to grieve, not celebrate at their calamities. Very difficult. And you're going to pray for them and you're going to show yourself ready on all occasions to relieve them where possible. You're going to forgive. You're going to move towards compassion. And finally, you're going to release them that you're going to. Let the matter die. You're not going to keep bringing it up. You're not going to use it as a a verbal weapon. When you get angry or you get tired, you're not going to say, well, I got this closet of unforgiveness that, boy, you just hurt me. Here's that thousand dollar dent two years ago. Now, all of us have a tendency to do that, but let me just speak to spouses. If you're saying you're forgiving then you're not necessarily going to forget, but you're not bringing it up as a weapon anymore. Or else you're not forgiving the person. 
You're going to have to pray about it. You're going to have to work on your emotions. There's lots of things you're going to have to do, but you can't keep bringing it back out of the closet and beating your spouse with it like a club because then it's not forgiveness. We're, we're going to release them. We're going to let the matter die. I'm not going to keep bringing it up. One way you can tell someone's in sort of this emotional prison of unforgiveness is they just can't let the matter die. You've seen it. You've seen it in yourself. You've probably seen it in others. They just, it, just is, it just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Several years ago, we had a guy who has since moved. He was in our congregation, and he was, I think he worked for International Paper, and basically what he did was like it was a forest ranger, managed, you know, all the forests that are around this area. And uh, he taught me a lot about forest fires, because obviously that was a big part of what he wanted to manage. And he told me that forest fires burn above ground and below ground. So above ground, obviously, it's consuming the trees. You can see it, he said. But there's a lot of organic material in the soil. So you can put the fire out above ground, but it's still burning the organic soil below ground. And so you have to be very careful because these underground fires can last for months after the visual fire is over. It can still be consuming this organic material. And you may have dug some sort of boundary or trench But because it's underground, it can just go underground. And then at any moment, Paul, it's amazing. It'll just pop up and start consuming the fire again or consuming the forest again. And when you think about that, it made me wonder how many of us have that going on in our hearts. The visual flame is down. But in our minds, in our souls, there's enough organic material that we're just keeping the flame alive. And at just the right moment, that little coal of anger, that little coal of bitterness, that little coal of revenge, it can set your whole marriage on fire. Set a whole church on fire, a whole whole city on fire. Because you never really... Got it all the way out. And he he said, you can't, of course, you can't do this. But the best thing to do would just to be flood the field. A nice soaking rain that gets all the way down in the soil. And so that's one of the ways you overcome forgiveness is you have the soaking rain of God's word. I have been forgiven much. So I can extend much forgiveness. And that has to really soak down into the soil of your mind. Now, let me finish this with a few concluding comments. Does forgiveness mean forgetting? Forgive and forget. Answer, no. It could. It should in some cases. But you all, especially if you're old enough, you have a wound that you're not going to forget. doesn't mean you haven't forgiven But it doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven if you haven't forgotten it. It just means you have to keep paying it down. You have to keep holding on to it or giving it to the Lord without using it as a weapon. Does forgiveness mean there are no consequences? Answer, no. We know this for many ways, but David committed adultery 
Remember, Nathan comes to David, the prophet, to expose David. And David confesses, and this is a great response. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. You should, but you're not. Why? Because the Lord has taken it away. But, because by doing this, the son born to you will die. You despise the word of the Lord, and by doing what is evil, therefore the sword will never depart from your house. There will be many times you extend forgiveness, and at the same time, you extend consequences. Depends on what the sin may be. Number three, what are we supposed to think of these last two verses? And in his anger, the master, the king, delivered the servant over to the jailers until he should pay for all his debt. And then then Jesus says, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you didn't. That's what. God's going to do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. That makes me nervous. And so, two ways that I think about this, and you can, there's maybe more, maybe even better than these two, but one, if you can't find it in your heart to forgive, then it's possible you never understood the cross. I think that's at least one way to read those verses. If you, if you turn and you're starting to choke somebody for a debt that you've been forgiven mountains more, maybe you never really understood the cross. So it's always something you want to go back to and say, maybe I just never really understood the cross. Uh, number two, I think that when you don't forgive, you notice that the, the man's put into jail And I think when we don't forgive, the natural consequences is basically we go to a jailer and say, would you put me in prison? And the prison is bitterness, anger, revenge. And it just it's like a boiling pot with a lid on it. It's always boiling and it's bubbling. And you just live in that cauldron all the time because you can't ever really get out of that bitterness. And God's saying, hey, you've just locked yourself into this prison. I've told you how to get out of it, but you keep holding on to it. And until you pay the debt off, which means in this case, you see what I've done, then you're just going to live in this place and it's going to be miserable and you're going to be miserable and you're going to make most of the people you're around miserable. Because you hold on to this coal of anger, of unforgiveness, and it keeps driving you in unhealthy directions. Last point. One of the hardest things to learn how to do is to forgive yourself. Of course, it is difficult to forgive other people, but sometimes you've done things and it's just difficult to know how to forgive yourself. And I want to just close with this story from... Rebecca Pippert, who's a Christian story, uh, Christian speaker, and she tells a story. After I'd finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform with tears welling in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately. She She sobbed as she told me the following story. 
Years before, she and her fiancé had been youth workers at a large conservative church, and everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months prior to their marriage, they began to have sexual relations, and soon afterwards, she discovered she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. We felt like the church wouldn't be able to handle knowing about our situation. And, of course, we couldn't bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I've ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day at the church was the worst day of my entire life. I've confessed this sin a thousand times, but it still haunts me. So somebody comes to you, how do you, how do you help that person? What do you point them to? Pippert says, when you look at the cross, all of us are guilty of murder. We're all responsible for the death of Jesus. It doesn't matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. The very sin of pride that caused you to abort your child is what killed Christ as well. Pippert went on, and then the woman stopped and said, Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying I've done the worst thing imaginable, and you're telling me I've done something even worse. But if the cross shows me that I'm far worse than I, I, that I had imagined, it also shows me that I'm completely forgiven. You see, that's what's happening. You look at the cross and you realize, I can't believe how bad I am. I can't believe how completely forgiven I am. And that's the fuel. That when your brother sins against you, you use that to move back towards forgiveness, towards one another.